from 2 Chronicles 36, 15 to 23. The Lord, the God of their ancestors, repeatedly sent his prophets to warn them, for he had compassion on his people and his temple. But the people mocked these messengers of God and despised their words. They scoffed at the prophets until the Lord's anger could no longer be restrained and nothing could be done. So the Lord brought the king of Babylon against them. The Babylonians killed Judah's young men, even chasing after them into the temple. They had no pity on the people, killing both young men and young women, the old and the infirm. God handed all of them over to Nebuchadnezzar. The king took home to Babylon all the articles, large and small, used in the temple of God, and the treasures from both the Lord's temple and from the palace of the king and his officials. Then his army burned the temple of God, tore down the walls of Jerusalem, burned all the palaces, and completely destroyed everything of value. The few who survived were taken as exiles to Babylon, and they became servants to the king and his sons until the kingdom of Persia came to power. So the message of the Lord spoken through Jeremiah was fulfilled. The land finally enjoyed its Sabbath rest, lying desolate until the 70 years were fulfilled, just as the prophet had said. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, the Lord fulfilled the prophecy he had given through Jeremiah. He stirred the heart of Cyrus to put this proclamation in writing and to send it throughout his kingdom. This is what King Cyrus of Persia says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has appointed me to build him a temple at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Any of you who are his people may go there for this task. And may the Lord, your God, be with you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. My name is Josh, and I am one of the pastors at High Rock, and it's uh, Great to be worshiping with all of you on this Sunday morning. And uh, as Pastor Joseph said, if you're new with us today, then we're especially glad that you've joined us and hope that you, uh, you feel like you are part of the family while you are here. So this is the third Sunday in the season of Advent. And uh, during these Advent Sundays, we have been doing this uh, kind of short sermon series where we've been talking about a light in the darkness. And each week, we've looked at events or moments in the life of Israel that were kind of these lights in the darkness moments that were leading them forward to the Messiah. Two weeks ago, uh, in her sermon, Pastor Yumiko talked about that moment uh, after Adam and Eve had sinned and, and after they had brought darkness into the light and life of the garden, uh, when God clothed them in animal skins and in this just incredible moment of sacrificial grace that anticipated the eventual coming of Jesus whose own body would, would be broken so that our sins might be covered by it. Last week, Pastor Joseph spoke from the prophets, those ancient heralds who during the darkest days in Israel would 
speak light into the darkness as they proclaimed the, the message of the Messiah who was to come and to save the nation of Israel. And now this morning, we turn to uh, another time of darkness, perhaps a unique time of darkness in Israel. A time when God wasn't speaking words of grace in the garden, nor was he speaking words of warning through the prophets. Instead, today, we turn to a time when God wasn't saying anything at all. I want you to do me a quick favor, if you would. Uh, if you have your Bible with you, I'd like for you to uh, open it up. If you don't have a Bible with you and you'd like one, I think, do we have some extra physical copies in the back anywhere? No? Are there some hidden in that little, oh, where Roger is, oh no, he's getting water. But if you looked <laughs> right behind Roger, there might be some hidden down there. I'm not sure. If there are not, Okay. So if you have your Bibles with you, you're in good shape. If you don't, you'll have to just kind of follow along with this. I want you to take out your Bibles, and I'd like for you to turn to the page between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, okay? So if you can, just turn there for a second in your text. And what most of you will find when you do that is that sitting there, In between the Old and the New Testaments is one blank page. And it might say New Testament on it, or it might just be entirely blank. Different versions and different Bible companies do it a little bit differently. But there should be one very blank page, maybe with just New Testament, written on it. Between the Old Testament, which is on your right, and the New Testament, which is on your left right here, this page is 400 years of Israel's history where God did not speak. And instead, there was total silence. To just get a quick sense for how long 400 years is. uh, 400 years ago, Galileo was in big trouble because he had just suggested that the earth was not the center of the universe, but that the sun was instead the center. Also, 400 years ago, the Dutch bought Manhattan for $24. Uh, The entire island of Manhattan for the equivalent of $24. So if you think of all the scientific discovery that has happened since Galileo first proposed heliocentrism, so if you just think about that basic proposal that the sun might actually be at the center, and then think of all the scientific progress that has happened since, and just think about how incredibly vast that spectrum is, that's 400 years worth of scientific progress. If you think about the $24 spent on Manhattan, and if you try to think now about if somebody went and said, I'd like to buy Manhattan, how much that would cost. That's 400 years of economic progress and how far that goes. So 400 years is an extraordinary, I mean, just in lived time, it's an extraordinary amount of time. And so what I want for us to simply look back on is that 400 years and and to try, and it's going to be very pathetic and small and insignificant on the whole, I know, and yet still try to at least enter into a little bit of what that silence meant. I am going to admit the first half of this sermon will be fairly dry um, and the second half will be 
just only a tiny bit better. Um, this is a sermon on darkness and silence and on a series of time in which we have no biblical text. So there are unique challenges to preaching, and yet I chose to do that. So, so let's start here. If we do turn in our Bibles to that empty page that sits between the Old and the New Testament, what is the final book of the Old Testament that precedes that empty page? Malachi. I would assume that everybody in the room who has a Bible, if you turn to the last book before the empty page, what you will find is that it's Malachi. That is not how the Hebrew scriptures that Jesus was reading were ordered. For Jesus, things were a little bit different. Who remembers what text Davida just read from in the scripture reading about seven minutes ago? Second Chronicles, that's right. So can anyone guess as to why on a Sunday when we are looking at 400 years of silence between Old and New Testament, the reading was from Second Chronicles? Because that was the last book in the Bible that Jesus read. It is primarily a history book going through the the different kings and leaders of the nation of Israel. Some of those kings are good. Some of those kings are bad. And that's what the book of Chronicles lays out for the reader. And it's not always the most engaging of reading. A lot of people skip over the whole book or at least significant portions of it because it can get kind of tiresome and laborious. Uh, I was, this is, this is good pastor joke. Um, I was at a dinner with the overseers the other night and I was just uh, commenting on how I really like Esther uh, chapter six, verse one, because it's this great story about how the king was, was uh, going to bed at night, but he couldn't fall asleep. And so he called and had the book of Chronicles come to be read to him. And how it's, you know, because that's what you do, right? If you need to, in it, for all of you, if you're ever sitting in bed at home and you just can't fall asleep, I recommend opening up Chronicles. Just start reading. Three minutes later, you will be gone. Because it's just not that engaging, especially in certain portions. And yet, important for us to look at. And there is definitely... Something of interest in the final chapter, though it will take a few minutes to get to the interesting part. The book goes through different kings, but the end result of all of those kings of the nation of Israel is that all of them, they fall short, things don't go well, the nation as a whole is disobedient, they are unfaithful to God, and the ultimate conclusion is that they are overtaken in war, and much of the nation who isn't killed is then forced into exile in Babylon, which is where the 36th chapter of Chronicles has us. The author is talking about the destruction of the temple and the exile that followed that destruction, and he concludes that part in chapter 36, verse 21, what David just read, with this, So the message of the Lord spoken through Jeremiah was fulfilled. The land finally enjoyed its Sabbath rest, lying desolate because no one was there. They'd all been taken into exile until the 70 years were fulfilled, just as the prophet said. So Israel has a bunch of kings. The nation is unfaithful and doesn't listen to God. And God doesn't then protect them when they go into battle. And the temple is destroyed and they go into 70 years of exile. 
Those 70 years of exile in chapter 36 are then covered in one single verse. And then things get at least a little bit interesting. The king of Persia, a guy named Cyrus, who not, not the same one that shared earlier. The king of Persia is moved by God to let the Jews return to Israel and rebuild the temple. And so the last verse of 2 Chronicles, and therefore the last verse of the entire Hebrew Bible, if you read all the way through the Bible that Jesus read, the last thing, the final verse that he would have seen reads, this is what King Cyrus of Persia says, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has appointed me to build him a temple at Jerusalem, which is in Judah, Any of you who are his people may go there for this task, and may the Lord your God be with you. Uh, John Shee, can I ask you for a favor? Can you just throw back up um, chapter, the, the last slide of the scripture reading, verse 23? And then click to the next one, which has the, yeah, there we go. All right, so this is the end of verse 23. Any of you who are his people may go there for this task, and may the Lord your God be with you. Now, John, hold on one second for one. So that looks good. That's a fine conclusion to the entirety of the Hebrew scriptures. That's fine. The problem is, John, can you keep it up for just a minute? The problem is that uh, this is in, in English. The Hebrew scriptures were in Hebrew. And what happens when we do translations often is we try to take Hebrew texts, and some of them might be a little complicated or maybe there aren't perfect parallels, so the translators do their very best to make it make sense for us English readers. Very kind of them, but sometimes we miss some little things, and in this case, it's an enormous thing. Turns out that the um, may the Lord your God be with you is not at all the final text from that text. What's the final text is um, something about going up, um, like he may go up. But that part is kind of pushed forward in this text, and it all ends just perfectly right here. So what we need to do, which we won't do right now, I won't make you do. The, um, this is the NLT. That's the passage we read from. The NLT, the New Living Translation, Its goal in translating Hebrew into English is to make it readable and accessible, which is great. It makes for really helpful for us to read. If you want to get a more literal translation where they might follow things more precisely, the English Standard Version is a more literal uh, translation from Hebrew into English. And if you wanted to read the English Standard Version, I'm just going to read it for you. This is how it concludes. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah, Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up, period. So the ESV still tried to help us out by putting a period at the end of let him go up. Those are the actual last words of the Hebrew Old Testament, or Hebrew scriptures overall. Let him go up. ESV put a little punctuation in there for us, but in the Hebrew, it's an incomplete sentence. The last sentence in the whole of the Hebrew scriptures is a sentence that doesn't end. You can read all the way through, and what you get to at the end is, let him go up, and and it's over. Thus ends the Hebrew Old Testament scriptures. And the reason... 
Well, let's not get to the reason. So, uh, John, thank you so much. You can kill that. So, if you followed me this far, here's the payoff just for this part. Remember that the last book of our Old Testament is Malachi, but the last book of theirs is Chronicles, which means that when the Jews read their Hebrew text, they read Genesis, they read the laws, they read the prophets, they read the history, and when they get to the very end, they read about their nation being forced into exile because they were unfaithful and all of the kings had failed, and at the very conclusion of the entire record, what they read about is the rebuilding of the temple and the rebuilding of the city and about how God's people can leave behind their place of exile and separation from him and how they can return to relationship and return to fellowship. And when they read, and then they get to, and they says, let him go up. So they read all about how they can go back to God, go back to their city, go back to the temple, rebuild it all and let him go. And they're about to be told how to do that And then there are 400 years of silence. Maybe this is only incredibly powerful in my mind because I spend hours per week getting ready for this. But think back to a Jewish man or woman who's reading their Hebrew Bible, going through creation and the days, law by law, prophecy by prophecy, king by king, until this final end vision, and they read the final vision, and it ends abruptly and incompletely, and I would think that their mind has to go, go up and, ah, right? Like, do what? Like, finish the sentence, God. Instead, 400 years where he would not speak to them. So what we're going to do now, as if this sermon isn't dry enough, is sit in silence for four minutes. And we are going to enter in just to a tiny fraction of the weirdness and the awkwardness of Israel's history. Well, I'm going to start it right on the minute so it's easy for me to time. Four minutes, go.
That was four minutes, which felt like an eternity to me, in which I wanted to make a joke about Pastor Joseph's cough and how he should be quiet during the silence. <laughs> then I realized that defeats the purpose of the silence. One minute now for every century of silence then. God's people sat for 400 years and he didn't say a word. There were no prophets. There were no visions. There were no angels. There were no burning bushes. Just silence. God had gone dark. And he wouldn't say anything to his people for 400 years. And then, and this is where it just gets ridiculously good. And then after 400 years, he ended the silence. Do you remember how? Do you remember how it was that after 400 years, God broke the silence with his people? And then, Luke 1 tells us, there was a man named Zechariah who was a priest in the temple. And Zechariah happened to be on duty that week. And it was the duty of the priests, or of one priest in particular who was chosen by Lot, to go into the sanctuary and to burn the incense all alone in there. And so, chosen that day by Lot, Zechariah went into the sanctuary of the Lord, and he lit the incense, and as the incense burned, after 400 years of silence, an angel appeared in the room with him. Zechariah was terrified, but the angel broke the silence by saying to him, fear not, I have incredible news. And that news was that Zachariah's wife would become pregnant and would bear him a son. A son, the angel explained, that would be great in the eyes of the Lord. A son that would be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he had been born. A son who came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. A son whose job it was to prepare the way for the Lord. And he would be to Israel their first prophet in 400 years. God broke the silence with his people, with an angel in a room alone with a priest, saying, I will give you a son. And do you remember what happened next? Zechariah doubted the word that had been spoken to him. And when he emerged from the sanctuary, he couldn't speak. The irony is unfreaking believable 
it is an incredible moment. 400 years, and finally, God says something. And the man who he says it to came out of the temple and is silenced and couldn't tell anybody. The text tells us that Zechariah is making all these hand motions. Like, you know, he's doing something. And all the people there, like, they clue in, like, because they were wondering. He'd been in there for so long. And the text tells us, like, they were wondering, like, what happened to Zechariah? And he comes out, but he can't talk. And it says that he's just doing these hand motions, like, trying to communicate. And the people get it. Like, in the moment, they get that something has happened and that Zechariah has had an experience. And they just have no idea what it is or, or how it came to pass. He can't explain any of it to them. And yet he waved his arms, trying to say, he spoke. Uh, you know, today is the, uh, it's the last Sunday of the year where we are descending into darkness. Next Sunday, when we come to church, we will be getting a little bit more light each and every day. And uh, I, I don't know about you, but I struggle with the dark. I know that when people first move to New England, they talk about the cold and they talk about the snow. But, you know, I can handle cold. I can get myself a coat and some good gloves and a good pair of shoes, and you can make it through the winter. But the dark is hard. The sun got rose this morning at 7.07 a.m. It's going to set today at 4.12 p.m. That is nine hours of sunlight to 15 hours of darkness. I saw Jason coming into the office this morning. It was early, like 6.45. He opened the door. He didn't say hello. He didn't, greet. He didn't ask me how my weekend was. The first words out of his mouth were, it is so dark. And it is. But at least we have a little light. Um, I have a friend. Some of you might have heard me tell this story before. But I have this friend. Uh, her name is Kitty Cup. And um, we were friends from college. And... Um, for years after we graduated, she would spend um, our winters, what is now summer, uh, in the south in Antarctica. And she would go and she would work on the U.S. space McMurdo that's there. And um, she was just cleaning, basically. She was just part of the kind of hospitality crew that works at the base to keep things running. And if you know, I don't know if you know anything about Antarctica, but we have a science, we have a number of science bases there. But the primary one's called McMurdo. We, being the United States, have a number of bases there. McMurdo is the primary one. That's where she worked. And Antarctica, you know, it's summer there right now, so all the folks are kind of in on on continent and doing their work. Uh, in the winter time, it gets incredibly cold and it gets incredibly dark. And um, what they do, or at least what they did in the days of Kitty Cup living there, was. Uh, you can't get in and out of Antarctica in the winter. So there's always, at the end of the summer, there's a final flight. And kind of, if there are hundreds of people that are there during the summertime doing research and all of this stuff, that it goes down to kind of a skeleton crew over the wintertime just to kind of keep the base running. It's just in the tens or so of people who live there. And it's a hard winter. It's extremely cold. It's extremely dark. It's pretty lonely. There's not much happening. And so most people are just there during the summer, and Kitty did that. For summer after summer, she would go, and then she'd fly out at the end of the summer, and she'd go back at the beginning of the next summer. But one year, she decided, 
that she would try to winter. She would stay on for that skeleton crew, and she would winter there. And she was with her boyfriend, and they were both working at the base, and so they decided to stay. And there's these great traditions. There's a dining hall at McMurdo, and when the last flight leaves Antarctica at the end of the summer, like, everybody goes out to the runway. They have champagne in their hands, and as the flight leaves, the flight, like, tips its wings to those who are staying, and they raise a glass, and they cheers, and they all go back into the dining hall for this big festive meal to kind of celebrate the beginning of the winter crew because they're going to need all the celebration they can get to make it through the winter. And so that's what they did, and she's kind of settled in for the winter, and her boyfriend were kind of keeping going, but it gets dark, and there are, at McMurdo, there are weeks and weeks and weeks on end of total darkness without the sun uh, in the middle of winter. And one day, Kitty sent some pictures at the time and sent this story. Like her and her boyfriend had just become so desperate for light that they had heard from others that if you ascended one of the nearby mountains, that if you got up to a certain height at the right time of day, and if you looked off into the east, that you could see just a little tiny bit of light. You couldn't see the sun, nothing even close to the sun, but you could see the sun was at like 17 degrees below the horizon. So you could see just the tiniest glimpse of light coming out over the edge of the horizon. And, you could, and so Kitty and her boyfriend like got all, it was like 70 below zero, but they like, you know, scarfed up and got everything they could on. And they went out at the right time and timed it right. And they ascended up the, this mountain and they got to the height and it was a clear day. And she took out her camera and she took a picture and it was just pure darkness, quite beautiful darkness. And then just at the and just this tiny, tiny fraction of light at the beginning of the day. And, and she just saw it for a few moments, you know, and you could kind of just watch it kind of skimming across. But it was just this, it wasn't the sun at all. It was just a tiny, tiny little reflection. But you're so desperate for it that you will go out in 70 degrees below zero temperatures and you will climb a mountain in Antarctica in the dark just to try and see the sun, just to try and get the, uh, the slightest glimpse of light. Israel sat for 400 years, and there was nothing. There was loss. There were wars. The temple got destroyed six times. And in the middle of it, nothing. And I'm sure that there were times when the people wondered if God had, had forgotten them or had given up on them, if these messianic prophecies would ever be fulfilled. And I'm sure that there are some of us that have similar thoughts because it has been a long time since we have heard from God. And we wonder if, you, if we've been forgotten or or if we are ignored, we wonder how God can allow the struggles for ourselves or the struggles in this world to continue seemingly without end. We wonder why he doesn't act and why he doesn't intervene and why he doesn't solve things and why Jesus just doesn't come back and set things right with this world. We wonder, just like the Jews did for 400 years. And yet, we also know that the silence didn't go on forever, that the darkness ultimately gave way to light, 
and that the angel in the sanctuary with Zechariah on that day wasn't the sunrise, but it was just the slightest beginning of the dawn. And I find just this incredible amount of joy in thinking about Jesus in all of this. I imagine him as a boy on a Friday evening sitting in the synagogue and hearing those words from the end of Chronicles or, or reading for himself on a Tuesday morning because the rabbi let him in and he's a curious young biblical investigator and the rabbi always lets Jesus into the synagogue on Tuesday mornings and I want you know him sitting in there and opening up that long scroll and reading to the very end and him knowing that he finished that sentence. That after all their failed kings, that he would bring the ultimate end to the silence and the darkness and connect us to God and bring back, and it wouldn't just be a rebuilding of a temple and the restoration of Jerusalem, but it would be an absolute and ultimate restoration of our relationship with the Father in ways that no one had hoped or imagined. John the Baptist was just the start. John 1 says, God sent a man, John the Baptist, to tell about the light so that everyone might believe because of his testimony. John himself was not the light. He was simply a witness to tell us about the light. The one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. So I leave you with this. This is the last Sunday where we descend into darkness. Next week, get a little bit more light each and every day. Next Sunday, I think it's three seconds of increased light that we get. And I don't know what darkness that you might be in right now. I don't know what spiritual darkness you may be in or what physical darkness or emotional darkness or relational darkness. But I know that Jesus can heal all. I know that he is the true light that is in the world, that there is no darkness that he cannot penetrate or dispel. And that just as the darkness might seem to overwhelm us now, that Christmas is coming, and with it comes the joy of new life and new light shining into this world. And so my prayer for you in this season of Advent that we are in the middle of right now, is that not only will Jesus bring light into the dark places in your life, but that during this season of Advent, he will give you the strength to endure the darkness that comes before it. Let us pray. Lord, I want to just thank you for the beauty of your scripture and the way that it unfolds. I thank you for the people of Israel who sat through so much silence. I thank you for the priests who continued to serve in the temple as they were able, who tried to be faithful in the midst of that silence. I thank you for Zechariah, the kind of conclusion of those priests who were waiting to hear from you. I thank you for the angel that appeared to him that day and spoke to him and broke the silence that you had with your people. We're grateful for the way that your, your story has been interwoven into history, the way that you have entered into the events of this world and worked and gives us hope even in the midst of our own silence and darkness. God, I just want to 
I just want to pray for the people who are here today, and especially for those who, when I say something along the lines of the darkness that you're in, they don't have to go searching for what, how that might be. They know exactly what that is. And today I want to just especially pray for them that whatever it is in their life right now where they just feel you are not there, you are absolutely absent, I pray that even if it is unknown to them that your Holy Spirit will help them persevere through the darkness, that they will not lose hope, that they will not turn away, that they will not withdraw, but that they will somehow, by the power of your Spirit, have the strength to continue looking forward toward the light, to continue looking forward with the hope and anticipation that Advent gives us. We expect that Jesus will be born. We expect that Jesus will come again. And we are people who are living just in the light, the early, dim dawn of hope that one day we won't need a sun at the center of our little get. We will have the light of the Lord shining brightly. Let's pray that you will give hope to those who feel so dark right now. We pray that in this season, I also just pray for people who, they are literally struggling with the physical darkness that we are in, and it is causing all sorts of emotions and struggles and conflicts. I just pray that you will encourage them and build them up and and be with them. Lord, I thank you so much for Jesus. I thank you for him, you know, sitting there and reading this text and what the thoughts that must have been in his mind as he got to the end of the Hebrew scriptures and realized that he was the conclusion, that that's, I just, I can't imagine what he thought when he sat there and read that as he was growing up. I thank you so much for him and for the beauty of your word. In his name we pray, amen.